Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder. I am one of your co-hosts for this amazing show. I am the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and proud co-host and co-creator of Straight Talk Live with my compatriot and partner in crime, Af Maholtra. Af, would you say a little bit about you and what has you excited about this show in particular? Thank you, Rick. Once again, we're here again and uh, very excited about the, the guest we have today, of course. And just before the show started, I was, I was explaining to Darcy that I've taken time out to study her past and absolutely fascinated by the incredible leadership les- uh, lessons and, and personal experiences that she's been through. So excited about the show. So, um, you know, you guys know me. I'm a co-host of the show. And, and, and uh, as Rick always puts it, we've got this chutzpah masala effect that seems to be working really well. Uh, my, my background, as, as you know, I'm the co-founder of Growth Enabler, a disruptive AI-driven insights business. And for many years have been in the research business and um, invested in a whole bunch of companies that I feel passionate about. And today, um, you know, excited to be on the show and let's, let's crack on and kick off because there's loads to discuss. Okay. So I am also very excited for the show specifically and um, our guest we're about to introduce in a moment here, Darcy Winslow. And we're going to be tackling this topic around systems thinking, how we lost the plot and how we f- we'll find our way back home. It's a big topic. And um, maybe some of you are very familiar with systems thinking. Maybe some of you, this is the first time hearing this. So this is, we're gonna go deep into what is systems thinking? How is it a different way to approach a problem where you're not just looking at the exact issue on the, on the surface or the, the topical problem, but realizing there's a whole ecosystem you have to pay attention to and all the interconnections. And I think that's never been more clear than right now with the whole COVID pandemic, uh, civil unrest, social injustice. We're seeing that issues are systemic. They're generational. Um, they're not just, they're even epigenetic in our DNA coding. It's not like it just happens in uh, 2020 and it's a one-off. Very few things are a one-off is what I'm realizing. And so this is really about looking at the underbelly of how do we even tackle problems from a deeper perspective, a more integral perspective in that way too, um, and really get at the source of the issue so that we can find a real solution. So without further ado, I want to introduce our special guest, Darcy Winslow. Um, Darcy uh, is the president and founder and faculty of the Academy for Systems Change. And she's worked at, she worked at Nike Inc. for over 20 years holding numerous senior management positions within the business and the Nike Foundation, including creating the Sustainable Business Strategies Division in 1999. And she was senior advisor to the Nike Foundation as general manager for Nike's global women's footwear, apparel, and equipment business. Um, Darcy, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Alf. So where I'd like to kick off, Darcy, is you know I interviewed you for my book. And it was one of the most amazing stories. Uh, so people, please check it out, chapter eight, if you're curious. Mm-hmm. Um, but your story around back in the day at Nike, you had to really move through adversity and challenge the ceiling that was there at the time around you know, the male-dominated uh, environment around how, how you relate to uh, 
shoes and customers and stores and purchase decisions and how it was very male-oriented, there really wasn't breathing space for the women's experience. And you were one of the very pioneers that changed the whole landscape. Um, and so I would love to hear more about that, just at any story, because a lot of people listening are facing adversity right now in many different ways and, and are realizing transformation is not always glamorous and it's not always sexy. And sometimes it brings us to our knees and sometimes it shows us our battle scars and, and that we have to find that next gear of grit and determination and courage. So I, I wanna kick it off to you. Um, what can you share about one of your own stories where you've had to find that deeper gear and something kept you moving forward in that way? Mm. Well, thank you, Rick. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is a few years ago, I was asked what my life's mantra was in three words. And it took me about 10 minutes to, to figure out what that was. And it was challenge status quo. And I think that is how I've lived my life. And as you mentioned, the, uh, the women's business at Nike, I started at Nike as a biomechanical researcher. And I remember when I first came in, I noticed, huh, we're doing all the tests on men. And, you know, why not women? Women are athletes as well. And just, you know, beginning to ask, not ask the question, but pose the the obvious fact that women are not small men, girls are not small boys, we're fundamentally different. And so uh, that just started a long progression of really asking why we did what we did at the time, challenging status quo. And over the years, it led to uh, you know the idea that we had to change the game for women athletes, women, women's fitness. And uh, so we implemented a you know, completely new offensive strategy that caused pretty significant change, not just when the, within the industry, um, or sorry, within Nike, but also we had to challenge how all of our retailers did their business. And so I think one of the themes, um, you know, that runs through that story and also the beginnings of integrating sustainability into our business, into our product, into the heart of what Nike does uh, back in the late 90s, it is having a clear vision, a clear goal, but not necessarily all the answers of how you're going to get from A to B. Mm. And to really like I said earlier, invite people into this uh, to, to help them see what that vision is. People don't change from their current state until they can also envision what a new potential future is. And so bringing that to life for them. Um, one of, I'll say one more thing. One of the other things that we truly believe in around awareness-based systems change, all change starts with self and understanding how we individually influence and impact the systems that we live and work in. That seems so relevant right now of looking at all of our ways that we might have unconscious bias, things that are getting in the way of how we're impacting something, the observer effect that just even me observing something is gonna change that thing, that phenomenon, and all the ways that we're conscious and not conscious of that is powerful. Um, could you just say a little bit about systems thinking? Like what exactly, how do you define systems thinking and what's the opposite of that? Like where is systems think thinking evolving from, in your opinion? 
Well, one of the easiest ways to understand what systems thinking is and what it isn't, too often we approach a problem with this problem-solving orientation. And what that forces us to do is to silo the different issues, to take a reductionist approach mm -hmm. to solve that one problem. And systems thinking is really the opposite. It's envisioning what is that future we want to create. It's a creative orientation. And to be able to step back and see all the parts and how they're connected. It sounds very easy, but it really takes time. And part of that work is engaging all the various voices in, in the system to get their perspective so that you be can begin to see and you know, it's an empathic way of being as well, to see the system from others' perspective as well. Mm. And then to look for the leverage points of how you can begin to affect the change. And um, I think another way to think about it is uh, not thinking system systemically uh, is much more linear thinking. Mm. And the time horizon is often different as well. So those are different ways to think about systems thinking. Do you, Darcy, do you see, it'd be great to get a perspective from you in terms of the application of systems thinking at a leadership level in these mm -hmm. large organizations that are going through, many are going through turmoil and volatility right now. And let's bring it also down into um, everyday life. Mm -hmm. And the scenario I will pose because it's a thread through the straight talk live sessions is employment or God forbid unemployment. So could you touch on how systems thinking could work at leadership level? And then of course, down to someone at home thinking about employment or thinking about the next job or thinking about what COVID would do to them. Um, uh, you know, the, catastro the catastrophic implications of COVID in their personal lives. So can it, can it be more importantly, will it be relevant? to those two scenarios? And if so, how? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think if we step back and we look at what's happening around climate change and the impacts that we're seeing everywhere today, uh, and then COVID, mm. the emergence of that, and now the social um, upheaval, all three of those are connected. Mm they are absolutely interconnected. And I think what this has, at least in my mind, there, there was a great book written in 2011 by Paul Gilding, The Great Disruption. And he spoke about the great disruption through the lens of the climate crisis. But what we, and we've known about climate change, global warming for decades, mm -hmm. but yeah. we see it as this slow moving train and people really aren't paying much attention to it. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm generalizing. And then along comes COVID and in a heartbeat, the world wakes up and we are experiencing a great disruption right now, not dissimilar to what Paul writes about in the book. Mm -hmm. And so not to go deeply into the book, but the last third of the book really talks about as we emerge, from this great dis disruption, what's possible? You know, what do we let go of that no longer serves us? You know, it's that attachment, detachment. It's holding on to what we know because that's less scary than the unknown. Um, and and how do we move into that creative orientation? 
what is it we want to create? One of the examples he uses, which I just love, that also speaks to uh, the social injustice, the inequity right now is as we come out of this great disruption, what if everybody worked half of what they currently do? Yeah. It creates less income to buy less stuff, which is part of the problem, and that more jobs could be created and create a more equitable um, you know, a, a way to live and thrive for everyone, not just some. So all of these things are connected. And, you know, one of the questions, what do I uh, wrestle with right now? It's, it's coming up with these examples of what, what needs to change? What do we have control over? What do we have influence over? And where do we impact the systems around us? So it, it's, it's also one of the uh, capacities of systems thinkers is that ability to reflect and to pause and to see what emerges and to create generative spaces where these conversations can happen and we hear different perspectives. Mm. And, and you touched on an important point earlier on and I was reading through some of the material that's uh, available on, on, on the portal on the website on um, the Academy of Systems Change. One of the points that um, really, really, you know, was relevant and, and uh, I started to think a lot about, which you talked about earlier on, was this concept of short-term versus long-term thinking, right? Where you have these point solutions available, the instant gratification model or symptomatic solutions. So, you know, um, I have a pain in my left arm or my right arm and you give me some paracetamol or Tylenol or whatever it may be and things are fine. But the issue is... Uh, much deeper, of course. And if we don't deal with the deeper issues, then it'll come and bite us down the line, you know, whether it's a year or two years or, or longer. And I guess COVID is the, the end sort of result of a combination of many, many small things that have happened over, over a period of time that we haven't actually um, looked at in an interconnected way, which I, I guess what systems thinking is really all about. So um, when, you, when you think about... Uh, climate because that's a huge part of what you're doing in your in your business in your world and you're not for profit um what what is what is missing well you know i remember this time when al gore years ago you know went out there and there was this incredible campaign and we all woke up for a period of time and then it's gone quiet again and we won't go into the politics of it um, unless you really want to but what, what what do you think is is required for all of us to now do in this, uh, we have this opportunity now after the reset, uh, you know, post-COVID environment. We all we're all, all asking very challenging and difficult questions, deeper questions that maybe we hadn't or weren't asking before this this event. Uh, maybe we have more time. Maybe we've been more pensive. Maybe we're reflecting a little bit more. Um, you know, heck, we started we started straight talked up live because of COVID because we had the time to think. And as you put it, the 50,000 foot view of, right, I see what's going on in this world. We've got to do something about it. And we've got to influence the influences if we can. What, what guidance or advice would you give? Or what is your viewpoint on what, what we can do as a collective and a community? And I don't just mean, I, I, you know, this is not about the intellectuals. This is not about the leaders of yesterday or the leaders of tomorrow. This is about all of us. What should, what should we do as, as, a, as a collective, as humanity, or as 
to adopt system thinking, uh, systems thinking in our lives because it's so powerful that I don't think it's well understood. Yeah, well, a lot of things come to mind. I think, first of all, you know, if we think about an iceberg, and you all probably know this, at the tip of the iceberg, which is only 9% of what we can actually see, those are the events. And I think, especially in the recent past, we've gotten into, okay, there's a new event every day. Look over here, look over here, look over here. And our, our focus is, um, it dissolves. And I think that's one of the challenges that we've been in, that we don't take that time to unpack and really think into what are the root causes, what are the structural aspects of the systems that we're living in that are holding these patterns of behavior, these beliefs in place. Yeah. And um, I, I was uh, in a, an email conversation with John Sturman at MIT, who's a climate scientist there, uh, right after our current president uh, was elected. And he was talking about the four potential scenarios of what would happen with the uh, agreements that had just been made in the Paris Climate Talks. And he went through these four scenarios and I wrote back to him and I said, given that, what can each of us as leaders, whether you have a title or not, what is it we need to do over the next four years? And his answer was profound. And I think, you know, this is so important that we have to change the narrative, that we can only shift people's mental models, people's mm -hmm. beliefs through stories of success whether big or small, uh, but we have to shift the narrative because we are stuck in one that's not working for anyone. And I want to just um, reference another example of, you know, where do you start? Where do you intervene in these generational complex challenges? Yeah. And when I was a senior advisor to the Nike Foundation, uh, they were focused on adolescent girls and young women in the least developed countries in the world and why they are stuck in abject cyclical poverty, not even being recognized as human beings. And through the, the research uh, that our research partners did, what we found were there were places, uh, there were times during a, a girl's life where they literally fall out of the system uh, because they're required to gather water gather firewood, uh, get married off at the age of seven. And we found that there, were, there was a lot of money being thrown at investing in their education mm -hmm. and that that would be the silver bullet. Mm -hmm. And what we found was you can throw all the money in the world at education, but if they're not going to school, if they're being pulled out to do these other things, that doesn't matter. So what are the other uh, points of intervention or investment and why do they fall out of the system at the age of seven, at the age of 12, at the age of 18, and then to create uh, solutions that address those particular problems. But you really have to step back and say, it's not just education. Uh, there are so many more issues. I like what you just said there about we need a new narrative and that a part of the problem is our narratives are out, a lot of them are outdated. They don't really serve the moment and, and our current awareness on this planet and our relationships. 
you're having me think about in a couple of weeks, we're having a guest come on, Charles Eisenstein, who talks a lot, a lot about how a lot of our story and narrative is on based on separateness. That's right. That we are, we feel like we're not actually connected to the environment. A lot of people feel that way. We're separate. We're somehow different. That, that way we can extract from and have a different relationship to the environment versus really be in harmony and synergy as an example. And so you're having me think about like, what would it take to get more connected as part of the system? Because I think a lot of the problem is we don't think we're part of the system. We think of ourselves as separate. Do you have a sense of what can shift that from your work that you've seen with organizations and governments and the many multitudes of people you've worked with in that regard? Yes. So, um, again, going back to, to self, uh, there are so many tools out there, you know, that you can increase your own understanding of what, how you live your life and the impact that you have on the environment, you know, a carbon footprint, a water footprint. Um, there's a great website called What I Love, okay? I love the ocean. I love wine. And you can click on that and say, okay, I love wine. I want to conserve wine. Well, what is my wine drinking pattern? What, what impact does that have on the planet? Hmm. So there's lots of ways to just educate yourself, but then how do you take that into your organization? And that was certainly, you know, the work that I started, um, again, around sustainability back in the late 90s, is asking the question, and this was actually asked of me, do you really know what's in your shoes? And, you know, at that time I was leading advanced R and research and development, which included all of our advanced uh, R and D efforts. And we brought together, you know, a group of the leaders. And, uh, you know, when that question was asked, do you know what's in your shoes? We said, well, of course we do. And he revealed to us um, all the, all the toxic chemicals that were embedded in our product due to our material choices, our designs, our manufacturing processes, even the transportation process. And we had to step back and say, no, we don't know what's in our shoes. And that started, uh, you know, what we've seen in place for the, you know, the last 23 years now. So sometimes it's really just the power of a simple question that causes you to reflect. And then what are we going to do about that? And that's, uh, that's what led to me setting Nike's 20-year goals back in 99 around zero toxics, zero waste, 100% um, uh, closed-loop systems, and sustainable growth and consumption. And I put those out there and they said, well, how are we going to do that? And he's like, I don't know. But the point was, what do you want to take to 100? What do you want to take to zero? Mm. And anything in between is just more or less of the same. And that also gets you out of this substitution approach and into a redesign approach. And uh, it was a real invitation for creatives, innovators to think, okay, what's possible. And uh, I think Nike's done an incredible job, still a long way to go, but uh, they've certainly become a leader in this work. Hmm. Do you think, uh, to Rick's point and to the response that you've shared, do you think, um, we're just gonna touch, cause we're having a conversation, right? So, and you've triggered a thought. 
this area of um, this area of uh, systems thinking does it also talk to issues like inclusion and mm -hmm. um, a boardroom that is a little bit more representative of either the products that you build or you sell and in fact take the entire value chain for that matter and it, it sounds to me like when you were at Nike and and it was a fascinating time of course because it was such a a marquee you know movement and a moment for you and and um, you know that's why my wife wears nike shoes now that actually fit and uh, so mm -hmm. thanks to you perhaps <laughs> and so um but do you believe do you believe 15 20 years down the line now um with everything you're doing do you actually think that leaders in these large organizations are deploying systems thinking it's been around for a long time but they're actually are they executing on it are they practicing it are we seeing a a, div a diverse group of individuals, men, women, um, from diverse backgrounds, race, color, all of that represented in the way that you think um, makes us buoyant and happy about where we're headed? Or do you think there's a lot of work still to be done, but specifically around the board, the boardroom now? Oh, there's tremendous work that needs to be done. And I do think we are at a pivot point. Um, I work with well, one of the projects of the Academy is the Magnolia Moonshot 2030, which I can say a little bit more about, but uh, it's an advisory council of 12 women. And we have gone deep, deep, deep into these issues uh, around, it is time for women to step into their full power leadership voice. Uh, it's time to celebrate the divine feminine, conscious leadership, in this age of the climate crisis, and now it's become so much more, COVID, uh, you know, the, the inequity. And, you know, really, really thinking deep into that and seeing what's happening. And on a call just two days ago, one of our uh, Magnolia Advisory Council members, she said, I have lived with this issue of racism every day of my life. And she went on to really bring to life what that has been like. And she said for the first time in her number of years, which I won't say, she said, I finally have hope that this really is a turning point. And what we've also been talking about, you know, COVID as an example, that crises like these expose fault lines. And these fault lines have always been there. We've known about it, but we've not done anything. There's, there's no way we cannot address these now. And so they've been exposed to us, and it's up to each one of us, each one of us, to keep this conversation alive and to explore what we can do about that. And I think this is having a ripple effect in organizations, boards around the world, uh, but they're still slow to move. And we have so far to go. But I think seeing the uprising of women, seeing the uprising of brown and black people, BIPOC, now is the time. And yes, some people um, may lose, may, um, you know, their future may be different. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's up to us to keep it moving. One of the things that we're doing in the academy uh, we're creating a task force for diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and really studying what white privilege means. I mean, we are mm. literally going through as a team, mm. uh, the book, Me and White Supremacy, which is an incredible workbook that, uh, that forces you to really think about your own privilege and how that shows up in manifest and unmanifest ways. So as these fault lines are being exposed, we have to step into them. And, and to be a leader, I'll just say one more thing, to be a leader, uh, the root of that word means to step over the threshold and take action. Leader does not mean you've got this title. So it's up to each one of us. And, you know, what's it take? I think it takes three things. It takes courage, you know, to challenge the current establishment and to really lean into, vision into, step into what's possible. It takes passion, you know, take everything you're passionate about seriously, except yourself. This is about the larger whole. And then love, you know, know what you love, know what you want to conserve and do everything you can to do so. You know, that really speaks to something deeply for me that you and I have talked about before, Darcy, around general re generational repetition, or we could even say generational amnesia. And, and what that has me think about is how we'll have these epiphanies, as you've talked about, or these moments of awareness where, oh, wow, police brutality is a real problem, or the state of wildfires and how that needs to get our attention, or the economy and the cycles of the stock market and the crashes and the ups and the downs. Whatever we're looking at with our lens, the problem is the season changes, and the fire is not as hot anymore. It's literally out, and then we forget. And then we forget about the police brutality for not everyone forgets, but the, the masses seem to forget. Yeah. And so what needs to happen differently? You were giving some good examples now about how do we actually lean in to those fault lines? How do we get to know those fault lines in ourselves and in our society? Anything else you can say about how do we prevent generational amnesia moving forward? Because I really do feel like it just feels different. Intuitively, we're not going back. And I feel that. And everyone I'm talking to in these worlds, are, they, they agree. Like, we're not going back to the same economy. We're not going back to the same race relations and unconscious bias like we've had before. There's something in women leadership and the rising of the feminine. There's something different that people can feel on a, a more collective level. I'd love for you to speak to that. Yeah. The, um, I want to honor the, the person <clears throat> excuse me, who uh, brought this concept of generational repetition to me. Hmm. He's a young leader at the World Economic Forum, and um, he's from Somalia, and he has been doing work with young change uh, leaders around the world. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he talked about generational repetition, and he sees it in working with young people. They get this epiphany, and then they don't learn from, they don't look to what happened in the past, and they continue what he called this puritanical style of activism. Mm. And that we fundamentally have to look at a different uh, way forward and engagement. <clears throat> and I think, um, you know, with COVID, I think it's fundamentally going to change how we interact in the world, uh, which brings other um, sh changes in behavior. Um, you know, the economy and the, the, well, let me go back. So, so with the, the current uh, unrest, questioning the police department, 
you know, do we need to shift? Do we need to defund just a little bit? Do we need to invest? That's the more of the same. Hmm. And I think some of the questions that are being asked, what if we completely shut down the police department? That's a zero or a hundred percent question. Hmm. So if we did that, then what? You know, what if we had peace officers, not police officers? You know, hmm. fundamentally shift how we're looking at this one of the questions I always ask about the economy and why we're stuck in this grow, 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 and that's the only model. What if we took away the Wall Streets of the world? What behavior would then change? Uh, you know, what would a new measure of growth and success look like? Mm -hmm. So these are some of the structural aspects that are in place that hold us in the patterns that we're in. And those are the ones that I think we have to really question. It, it's it's also it's also a painful time. I mean, you know, when you talk about resets and change, and you talk about um, what was the term generational repetition. You said mm -hmm. generational. Yep. Repetition. Um, I, I wonder if because you know, at least in, I'm I'm here in London, of course, and you know, COVID has had its own sort of impact here, but I'm through conversation with a lot of people, I'm starting to realize 2020 is going to be a year filled with, uh, yes, of course, the pandemic, but of course, the trauma that comes out of the pandemic, people have lost a lot of loved ones, close people, they haven't been able to mourn, they haven't been able to go for funerals, there's no real closure, things are being done on video calls, and so on and so forth, uh, especially things that require physical contact, you need the, the, the embrace, you need to hug someone, yeah. you need to yeah. feel like someone's sharing your pain or your sorrow. And I'm, there are numerous cases that I've had of people one network away from me who are going through this pain. They've lost an aunt, they've lost a grandmother or, or grandfather or someone, someone along those lines. So do you believe that the, the aggregation of so much trauma in a concentrated period of time, and this has happened before, of course, in civilization, you know, and um, humanity has suffered, losses have happened, and whether it's ethnic cleansing or a genocide or whatever it may be, do you think this compressed... Uh, trauma in what three months four months is it is it going to be a trigger for what we've just described because and you know you said your your colleague earlier on was hopeful this is the first time ever she was hopeful that something good is going to happen we don't know what that is is it intuitive is it instinctive is it just a combination of other things but do you believe this collective compressed amount of trauma uh, is going to be the trigger is that going to be the trigger? Because people are going to say, right, I think, do you know what, growth? I mean, I run my own business and I'm starting to question whether it's five years ago when I built up a, a business came coming out of the corporate, I was on a mission to make a difference and so on. I was just thinking about this over the last three months. I don't know if I want the same growth anymore. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it's doing. Why am I doing it in the first place? Why are we hiring all these people again and again and again? And, and where is it going to end up? Um, more technology, more AI to do what? Uh, and, you know, the old school thought was become really rich and then take all the money and help other people. Well, why do you have to become rich to help other people? Why can't you do it now? Um, and I, I, I don't know what you think about that. I mean, it's, there's no answer to the question, but a perspective would be really valuable. And both Rick and, 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 and Darcy appreciate what you guys think there. Be good to hear. Well, to go back to the beginning of that, yes, I lost two very close family members <clears throat> in March, and I've not been able to go back to Indiana to celebrate their life, to be with family. Um, so I've experienced that uh, personally. Mm -hmm. And 
I think in, in lots of conversations I've had, certainly with my board members who are part you know, of large organizations around the world, the theme that came up uh, when I called a special board meeting just to understand what were they seeing in their organizations and mental health came up repeatedly. And, you know, depending on, you know, I am privileged. I live in a place where I'm surrounded by nature. I can get outside um, and it's, it's quite nice. And then there are others, uh, literally, you know, one who lived in New York City in an 800 square foot apartment and couldn't get out and had to work from there, live from there. Um, you know, the fact that uh, you know, Peter Senge, who is part of the academy and, you know, a thought leader and who I've learned so much of this from, he said in Boston, uh, they estimate over 25% of kids have just completely dropped out of school because they don't have the place to study. They don't have the, you know, technical equipment. Uh, they don't have the support system around. They've completely dropped out of the system. And I think, and those are just, you know, a couple of snapshots. So I think mental health uh, is a huge issue that we're going to have to deal with, that we are dealing with. And then the other thing that this brought up, and another one of my colleagues, mentors, uh, Otto Scharmer, he's talked about the three divides and how these are interconnected. And I think it really takes um, you know, some reflective time to understand how are these interconnected and how do we start to bridge these divides. The first one is the ecological divide and the fact that we're currently using almost 1.7 Earth's worth of finite natural resources every year. And pretty obvious, we only have one Earth. So we're drawing down from a savings account. Um, so that goes back to how are each of us living on this planet and what's our uh, impact on it. The second divide is the socioeconomic divide. And one of the examples uh, that is often used is, you know, there's plenty of food on the planet. And this kind of gets to COVID and, you know, the fault lines that have been exposed in our food supply system. Uh, there's plenty of food, mm -hmm. but over 1 billion people have too much food, over 1 billion people have too little food. So it's a distribution problem. It's how we've designed the system. And right. systems will deliver exactly what they are designed to do. And then the third divide, which gets to the mental health piece, um, it's often called the spiritual divide. And the World Health Organization a few years ago estimated that over three times as many people were dying of stress-related illnesses and suicide than we're dying from homicide and war every year. And all three of those numbers are moving in the wrong direction. So how do we link these? How do we bridge these and find ways to intervene uh, to start to turn this around? Mm. Powerful, powerful. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, two sessions ago, we ran, ran this session on unemployment. Right, it was uh, it was highly topical, and we were looking at, we were essentially addressing the fact that there's an unemployment crisis on its way. And this was what three weeks ago, right? Four weeks ago, mm -hmm. and um, we had some great 
um, participant in the call. And, and one, of the, one of the things that MIT, you, you talked about a lot of um, great examples there. One of the things MIT's talked about is four skills that we need to be thinking about um, and to, to survive the unemployment crisis and maybe thrive down the line. And it's funny because the first one talks to what you've been talking about over the last 45 minutes, which is systems thinking. And what they're basically saying is that you've got to they position it in a similar way. They talk about ecosystems. They talk about value chains. And they're saying, listen, whether you're an individual looking for the next job or you're a leader of a large organization, you've got to step back. You've got to look at the entire chain. You've got to understand each component of the chain in a lot of detail, even if that takes you much longer. So you've got to be a little bit more patient and truly understand the implications of a lot of these things that we've not really had to think about over the last decade or so. You know, we haven't had to think about ecological benefits. We haven't. We've not thought about ESG and climate change mm -hmm. in the same way. We've, a CSR came recently, and so it was firstly marketed as, oh, we, we should do CSR. It's a good thing to do. But now people truly understand why one should do it, much more than ever before. Diversity, inclusion, we've been sort of marketing these concepts. But we haven't really understood what it really means to have it in the system and take it out of the system. You know, it's one of those sort of, the, the, the balance hasn't really been fully understood. And I think what you're saying really is that maybe this is a very important time for us to accentuate, amplify, promote the systems thinking concept and start living it. It's not just about the intellectual debate mm -hmm. and reading good books. We can do that, of course. That's right. You know, um, but we've got to crack mm -hmm. on with it. Lead by doing, um, mm -hmm. I think, is what I'm hearing here based on the entire sort of experience that you've shared. And I think... Um, you know, what I take away from this conversation, and, and Rick, please, please um, see what questions have come in. I, what I'm taking away is that when we close the laptop and we walk away from this, it's not just another 60 minutes of an interesting discussion. We've got, to, we've got to ask ourselves some very important questions. Am I truly ready for World 2.0? Am I truly getting myself ready for this new reality based on a lot of what you've shared, Darcy, with your institution as well? Um, and I, one of my questions is, how do we get involved in this movement? Not, not everyone has the network or the wherewithal or the connections. So how, how should we get involved in the movement that you've created or others are creating? Well, what do you suggest? I would say first start educating yourself. Um, you know, th there was a great paper written by Peter Senge and a few others several years ago called uh, Communities of Leaders or No Leadership at All. And too often we wait for the executive leaders, the leaders with the title to mandate something. And what they espouse in this paper, and I, I've seen it, I've, I've lived it, it's the network leaders. Mm -hmm. Those who are within organizations or communities that have a reputation, that have influence to engage others. Mm -hmm. And again, it goes back to one of the qualities of a systems thinker or a gateway or a capacity, however you want to look at it, is to be able to create the space to have these reflective generative mm -hmm. conversations. So much starts from there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, taking that step into it and just start asking the question, you know, what can we change? What can we influence? And uh, just a quick story, uh, back in 2009, I had my oppor first opportunity to go on a climate change expedition to the Antarctic. Mm 
And it was led by Robert Swan, who's, um, I believe, the only person in the history of mankind to have walked to both the North and South Pole unaided. So he was our expedition leader. And we took about 50 um, young, emerging, you know, either graduate or PhD students that were, that had applied for these 50 slots from around the world. We took them down there to have one of these conversations in the place uh, that's often considered one of the most important parts of the world in terms of climate. Mm. And so to make a long story short, it was a profound experience. And I was there as one of the, as the sustainability uh, kind of expert or leader. And the mandate coming back was from Robert was not everybody can nor should go to the Antarctic. So by virtue of you being here, you return back to the real world uh, with a huge responsibility to tell this story and to engage people. So I, I came back and I got about 50 friends and family together. And, you know, I did a slideshow and just talked about my experience. And at the end of it, there was just dead silence. And I thought, oh, I put everybody to sleep. But then this one woman raised her hand. She said, oh, my gosh what can I do? Mm. And so I stepped back and I really thought about what are the 10 lessons that I've learned, you know, over my years of, of being a practitioner in complex adaptive challenges. And the last one uh, is check your ego at the door. You can't mm. own this, mm -hmm. you know, but you play a part in it. Mm. So how do you engage? The other thing is tell the truth. We have to tell the truth. Mm. Um, and that sounds so simple, but just look what's happening around us today. Mm -hmm. And it's a diversionary tactic. So there are lots of other lessons that I've learned, mm -hmm. but um, I think ego and ownership get in the way way too often of us being able to collaborate um, at the levels that we need to today. What you're... Sorry, go on, go on, Rick. I was just going to say what you're really having me think about is a huge takeaway from today. And we're going to get to some audience questions, by the way. So if you're listening, please send in your questions now is a good time. Uh, what I was going to say, Darcy, is that you keep bringing it back to the self and that it really has to start with each, each of us. And we actually have that empowerment, that ability to do that. And that really strikes a chord with me, um, even from our last episode around neuroscience and how do we learn how to connect with ourselves first? We're responsible for our own nervous system and how we regulate ourselves. And from there, how we connect with our environment. Um, and if our environment is um, unpredictable and chaotic, how can we still stay connected to that also? And it's just such a powerful theme that I keep hearing about because sometimes I'll hear people say, well, what difference do I make? I, I, if I recycle or not, it's so much bigger than me. So what dent do I put in the universe by recycling a little bit? And you'll hear that excuse from a lot of people out there, but you're really having me feel in a different way today, not just the thought, but the actual experience of, if I care, if I give a shit about how I relate to my environment locally, super locally, or the conversations that I have, the micro conversations that I have in my family system, that does make a difference. I don't have to have this global, huge mandate necessarily um, but it actually starts with each micro conversation and, and how I feel connected to my environment or disconnected and separate. So that's my responsibility to get connected. Yeah. And if we each took that step, 
that's a powerful, that's a different world. That's a different conversation. And that's one that I want to be part of. That's right. Can I tell a quick story on that? Please. So, so one of the other kind of mantras in systems change is it is the seemingly insignificant shifts in habit that actually start to transform a system. Mm. You know, it's not going to be that one big lever that we pull. And, you know, I've sat with this for years and, you know, trying to look for examples. And in 2006, I had the opportunity, uh, along with 119 leaders from around the world, to spend a day with the Dalai Lama. Mm. It was called Connecting for Change. And it was a three-day event, but we had one day with the Dalai Lama. And for one hour during that one day, 12 out of the 120 of us uh, had the opportunity to sit in a circle and have a conversation with the Dalai Lama. And, you know, most of us had never met before we came together. This was in Vancouver, BC. And uh, we were trying to decide how are we going to choose the 12 people. And one of the, the guys said, look around. There's only 12 women out of the 120 that have been chosen to be here. So we got to sit in circle with uh, the Dalai Lama. And at one point, somebody asked a question. And, um, oh, man, he's just amazing. He'll, you know, he'd sit there and think, and then he'd start into this story. And at the end of it, here's how he answered it. He said, when one person smiles to another person, it makes a difference to that one person. But if a million people smile, it makes a big difference. So what are these small shifts in habit that each of us can do every day? And, you know, with your family, with your community, with your church, with your school, with your team at work, uh, you can start to create that ripple effect that you have to be intentional. That's so important. Like we all actually have much more empowerment than we give ourselves credit for uh, most days of the week. Um, and I think that's so important for everyone to hear that. Um, let me combine a couple questions that are coming in. Uh, this is a common one that I'm seeing. One's from Paula and Jean-Paul. I'm going to combine these two here. So they're asking, how do we best engage a skeptic who doesn't see or believe that they are a part of the system and not separate from it? And along that same line, how do you communicate your systems thinking applied to a system or an individual who's not privy to the overall view of the system? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Both of those are big. <clears throat> it, uh, let's see, engaging skeptics. Um, I had another opportunity. This is connected to how we redesigned the women's business at Nike. Mm -hmm. um, it was really effective. And after we had been running that offense for a couple of years, the president of Nike asked me and another gentleman to put together a team to redesign how the rest of Nike operated. And there were a lot of skeptics in there <laughs> because they had built the kingdom and, you know, they had very important parts uh, of running that. And so as we created this new design and started to engage uh, folks around the organization, we, we said, how are we going to engage what we called the curmudgeons? We, you know, we loved them all, but they were like, no, no, things are great the way they are. So we would bring them in and we, we showed them our thinking, laid it all out. And we just said, now we are inviting you to break our thinking. Ooh. You know, you've got one month. Tell us all the ways this won't work. 
and you could just see him drooling. All right. <laughs> this is our opportunity to take this down. So they came back in a month and they said, well, we don't think this, 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 and this will work. Okay, great. Thank you. We took that in, you know, mm. and the third time we presented to them, they went, hmm, I think this will work. And that offense is still in place today. So how do you engage skeptics? Start with where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, I had another one of my mm -hmm. managers ask me once. He, or he said, I'm 49% for this and 51% against. Like, what? And so I said, okay, so what do you need to see? And so he told me, well, I want to see this, this, and this. So I went back and did the, you know, work and presented and ultimately he became a champion. Mm. So it's that old uh, lesson of when you meet force with force, it mm. doesn't work out well. Right. So work with that energy, you know, yeah. what do you need to see? That's Start great. They are. That's great. And for someone who does maybe not privy to the whole system, is it really just about in share, enrolling them in the vision and having a powerful way of doing that and getting them in the conversation and getting them finding out what's important to them as a stakeholder as well? Right. And helping them see what part of the system uh, they are in ah. so that they can mm -hmm. see that they are part of a system. You know, we also say you can't change a system until you can see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So helping people see how they you know, where they have control, influence, or impact. Mm. And on the communications piece, um, you know, I certainly learned this in my work around sustainability, that you have to become bilingual. You have to become a translator. Mm -hmm. You can't just use the same language for every single person. They're in a different place. They may be a creative. They may be an engineer. They may be in finance. Uh, they may, it may be a completely new concept to them. So being that translator and being able to use the language that they can hear. Uh, it also mm. gets to, you know, archetypes. Uh, mm. If you've got a ruler trying to talk to a nurturer, you know, they, they have different languages. So mm. just being aware of the culture as well. That's powerful. Yeah, I like that a lot around if you can link that person's highest values to the objectives of the mission, and that's then they can feel their aliveness and how it actually it serves them too individually. Right. So I love I love these different ways of, of going about that. It's all, I think it's all, just to add to that. I think another thing you're saying is, uh, um, not the right analogy, but oppress and oppressed, an oppressor mm. and the oppressed. You the delta is so wide. The delta is so wide, and I think sometimes I guess there were some brilliant questions around how do you create change in an organization? How do you drive an ethics or an ethical program that has ma massive buy-in, which I think you've touched on and I wish we had more time. But I think the point you raised, um, which is very important, is that sometimes the bipolarity or the kind of difference between um, one and the, uh, and the other is so massive. It's so huge. Uh, sometimes you think if you are the one who's trying to convince the other, you think, well, I just really can't be bothered. You know, um, surely you should be able to understand this. And I think in, in those situations, Darcy, just a quick one. How do you find the motivation then? How, you know, let's say you've tried five times, okay? And there's no proven blueprint here, but you try five times, you think, you know, this, this guy just doesn't get it. He's not left his ego at the door, right? What mm -hmm. do you do in those situations? You just say, not for me, I qualify out, or do you keep trying? Yeah, well, this goes back to um, the network influencers. So 
you know, a very real example, when I started the work in sustainability back when it was not a concept that was well understood, much less integrated into corporations. And I tried to start with the top. You know, if I can get, you know, the C-suite on board, this is really going to go. But the business was growing great. Consumers weren't asking for it. There was no business case to be made for it. There were no examples. Um, but for six months, you know, I kept banging my head against that door. Mm. And then I stepped back and asked the question, who are the heroes in the system? And Bill McDonough, who really got me on this path, he once uh, said, design is the first signal of human intention. Well, mm. designers, that's where all the products start at yeah. Nike. So if I could get the designers on board who are highly influential, mm. maybe we have a path forward. So that's become, um, you know, just a working mantra for me. Who are the heroes in the system? And it's, you know, it could be the educators in, mm. in you know, education. It could be the engineers at a place like Intel. Um, I, I believe youth right now mm. are the heroes. And how mm. do we engage you know, up and coming leaders. I love They're, that. They write that. They they want to be in the game right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. Yes. That's pretty, really nice example. Thank you. I got to ask you one last question from one of our audience members. It's very pertinent here. It's from Manuel, and he asks, "How could systems thinking be used in a practical way in the creation of ethical systems in business? How could it be applied when trying to carry out a project for a company?" especially if people are really focused on short-term benefit and savings costs, but there's some ethical implications. How would you even go about that? And we have one <laughs> In a few minutes. <laughs> well, you know, when people get stuck into that short-term thinking, mm -hmm. I often used to ask, still do, what is the one thing about your organization that you would not want to be in tomorrow's headline, hmm. you know, let's start there. Um, and that starts to reveal and unpack some of the more deep seated systemic problems, because I think it goes back to, if we just look at, you know, what's on fire right now, we're at that events level and we never step back to see what are the patterns of behavior? What are the trends? What are the artifacts in our system? that are driving those behaviors that get stuck. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it, what do you want to conserve in the system and what do we need to let go of? Mm -hmm. they're, they're very simple questions, but we never take the time to ask that. Mm -hmm. We just get right into the problem solving. Mm -hmm. I love that. There's one last thing. I think, um, there's a big difference between a positive vision and a negative vision. And a negative vision is, you know, simply put, what do we not want versus what do we want? And it, mm. it just invites a completely different conversation. Hmm. You're having me think of one last thing that, you know, the poet David White, I, went, I was fortunate enough to go on one of his trips in Ireland, which is incredible. And he said something that was really profound, something along the lines of, um, you know, what's, what's the life that your future self would be proud of when it looks back? 
and just getting you to think about who is it that I want to be that I could look back and be at peace with and feel really comfortable with. Same with an organization, like what's that future organization looks back and at our current state and what would have it feel uh, proud and, and supportive and we're right on in alignment with those objectives and, and values and goals. And so those kinds of questions really, I think, open up the conversation for people to think bigger than just the cost savings in the here and now. There's a great poem uh, that I invite people to look up and I can't remember the author, but it's just called The Dash. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful poem about the legacy that you want to leave. Okay, I love it. The Dash. So as we're winding down here, Darcy, uh, we could do this seriously. We could have you for another 10 episodes, like I predicted when I, we talked a moment ago. So we might ask you back here, so be prepared. But where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, what, what can you say to our audience members out there? Well, our website is academyforchange.org. Um, we also have three additional websites where if people really want to start learning and educating themselves, uh, it's at the top of our landing page, but it's um, the System Leaders Field Book. So it's an online field book that just inventories and kind of categorizes into five kind of lead system leader challenges, modules, and the, some of the different tools and practices. So Systems Leaders Field Book, uh, Academy Stories, where we've uh, captured the story of large-scale systems change, very complex mm. change, one in Baja around a uh, marine ecosystem and fishery, and one with the Nature Conservancy around the Mississippi Basin in 31 states. So Academy Stories. And then all of uh, Donella Meadows' archived work is our third website. And uh, we merged with the Donella Meadows Institute back in uh, 2016. So Dana was also one of the earliest systems thinkers along with Peter Senge, and they were colleagues. So our rivers merged. And then uh, the last one, which you can find on the Academy itself, is a link to the Magnolia Moonshot 2030, which is uh, the work that we're soon to be launching around women, women leadership, and what amazing work is happening around the world, around yeah. climate, the sustainable development goals, and now, you know, social justice. Amazing. So please plug into academyforsystemschange.org. Is that right? academyforchange.org academyforchange.org please check that out um darcy and her colleagues are up to some some of the world's leading edge work in in all of these different ways so i want to thank you again darcy for being part of our show here and i also want to um just talk briefly about oops uh, next week's show we're gonna uh, it's actually gonna be on tuesday usually we meet on thursdays but we're gonna have two next week so on tuesday we have the honor of welcoming Dr. John Demartini, who's literally one of the world experts in, in mindset, in leadership mindset, and how do you transform your greatest challenges and obstacles and move from what, what you think is in the way to what's on the way, and how do you make that shift? And he's incredible. So I hope you all tune in next Tuesday for that show. It's going to be amazing. And lastly, Darcy, anything you want to say to our last words or to our audience members around uh, losing the plot, but then finding our way home. Just start. Just do it. <laughs> you still got the Nike in there, I see. I still have it, yes. Just do it. Don't wait. It's time. Mm. The opening is here. 
brilliant Prof- that Love was prof- that was that was a nice close that was an absolutely fabulous yes. close. Thank you so much, Darcy. We love your energy, your wisdom, and we want you back. Um, So thank you again. (laughs) Have a wonderful day. You, everyone listening, go out there and just do it. Okay. (laughs) Goodbye for now, everyone.